and welcome to episode 68 of Barefooting with Sierra. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral land of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Ojibwe, Nakota Sioux, and others for time immemorial. I also would like to acknowledge that this land is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta and that I'm a settler on this land. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist. I use they, them pronouns, and I've been living without shoes since 2010. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things that I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. I break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my creative professional life. And in each episode, I also interview a creative entrepreneur about their professional life. In this episode, I interviewed Chancellor Jackson, author of 14 Days in Beijing. Let's get started. First up, novels. I'm super excited to announce that my short story, Murder on the River Valley, has launched with the app Story City. It's meant to be played in the streets of a city, with each chapter only opening if you're standing in the right location in that city. We're launching the story initially in Edmonton, but I'm happy to place it in any city where people are excited to play it. Just send me a message or email with your city and I'll get in touch about where to put it. More info about Murder on the River Valley and the Story City app is in the show notes. My New Year's resolution was to read one book from the Texas Band Books list each week. This week I read The Pants Project by Kat Clark. I'm fairly certain that this book was targeted for the band list because it's a coming of age story about a trans kid who also happens to have two moms. Liv goes to a school that requires uniforms, pants for boys and skirts for girls. That wouldn't be that much of a problem, except for the fact that Liv might look like a girl, but is actually a boy. Liv organizes a petition and student protest after the principal refuses to change the school uniform policy. They eventually gain enough support from the student body and garner enough media attention that the school changes the policy to allow anyone to wear pants. The story goes beyond just a heartwarming story about a trans kid, though. Liv's best friend Jacob is struggling with coming to terms with issues of his own. He has a joint hypermobility condition, which is never specifically named as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but is accurately described as such. He doesn't want to use his mobility aids or sit out of activities while dealing with joint pain because he's worried about how other kids will react. And then there's the Mean Girls, which every school has. This book is incredibly well written, and I highly recommend checking it out. The Pants Project definitely belongs in school libraries for the lessons it can teach kids in how to deal with bullies, how to stay true to yourself, and how to stay close to your family when dealing with outside stresses. Now for my interview with Chancellor Jackson, author of 14 Days in Beijing. Hi, Chancellor. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. If you could tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, and what prompted you to write your book. Um, it was, you know, first off, blessings and balance to you. Um, appreciate you for having me on. Blessings and balance to everyone that's tuning in. Chancellor K. Jackson is the name. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, 26 years old, played football basketball majority of my life, high school and at the collegiate level, D1. Um, for those that are fans of football, I'm a DB at heart, only position I've ever played in my entire career. After the graduating from Stetson, I landed my first job teaching English to children in China. Um, so went out there, was out there for six months, absolutely amazing, best experience I've ever had. Um, I highly recommend everybody travel abroad for sure, but you can't really get immersed within a different culture with a few days. Like I encourage people to 
if you can and get the opportunity to live abroad someplace else for a good portion of time, highly recommend it. Truly, truly. China was absolutely amazing. I enjoyed the experience. The food was great. People were great. Um, working was a vibe. I, I was working kids as young as three years old, all the way to 14. I'm, you know what I'm saying? I'm mainly with babies. So we just playing games the vast majority of the time. So we lit in class and just exploring China was absolutely everything. So I was enjoying myself. And then April 4th, 2019, that's when <laughs> the fairy tale came to an end and I was arrested on drug charges. And after that, detained um, for 14 days in the Chinese penitentiary where I was locked up 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 15 people to one cell now with beds. Um, I knew I wanted to do something with the experience in the story. I just didn't know what. Um, and then chilling with a good friend of mine and he was a published author before we graduated high school in 2014. He was the one that put the bug in my ear like, hey bro, you should write a book about your experience. I'm like, man, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For sure. And he threw me another alley-oop and gave me like a little outline to follow. And I just started filling it in. And then four months later, the story was finished. And six months later, we was published. So that's just how that came to be. <laughs> and a lump sum. <laughs> it's quite a quite an adventure. And what was it like <laughs> being in this Chinese prison? First three days, I was the only English speaker, only foreigner in my cell. So and then it's, I'm in China. I'm from, I'm from Atlanta. I don't speak Mandarin fluently. Oh, you know what I'm saying? So communication was non-existent those first three days. Even though I'm, I'm amongst plenty of other people, but I was still isolated. So just a lot of reflecting, honestly, and you know, a lot of a lot of reflecting. And then on the fourth day, that's when things take a turn. I moved from one cell, the first cell I was in, to another cell. And then that second cell is two English speakers. So now uh, I can start making sense of how this process is going to work. Because mind you. Yes, I, I know I, I got arrested for weed, but these people ain't explained nothing to me as far as what was going to happen next, what's this process going to be like, anything. I just know I'm just in this jail now. Nobody knows I'm here. I don't know how long I'm going to be here and trying to figure out how this thing lay out as I was going. Um, so, but it, I, no, it was still peaceful in the, in the cells. It was cool. Um, it wasn't a big sale at all, just big enough to house 15 people. And the characters, especially when I get into cell number two, the second cell, that's when, like I said, I can communicate with the other English speakers, of course, but the English speakers are also fluent in Mandarin as well. So now I can communicate with the actual Chinese people I'm locked up with. So it's just like learning about all these different characters and their stories, what they ended, you know what I'm saying, what brought them in j to jail and everything. So um, it's a very, very great, it's an interesting story. Of course, um, just because it's like locked up abroad, most of us can only imagine something like that happening to us. So you get a firsthand experience. One, and then it's in China. It takes place in China. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people have no knowledge of Asian culture, Chinese culture at all. So you learn a lot about China. And this is a, a we live in a country where vast majority of our products come from one that place over there. So it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's very just interesting to learn about the group of people and just how their system and society is. And you know what I'm saying? You learn why they are the way that they are. And then I'm a very spiritual and conscious individual. So as you read the story, you can tell that I'm the only, I'm not nervous, I'm not scared, I'm not really panicking. Very level-headed throughout the entire experience is very level-headed. 
yeah, it's a very enlightening story as well as entertaining, without a doubt. Yeah, I noticed that uh, you definitely got the the spirituality when you started the the love and light to everyone who's listening. How did that spirituality focus help you get through being imprisoned? Yeah, just, you got to hold on to something. You got to have something. I'm in, in a situation I don't have no control over and no information. That's the only thing I got to rely on. If not, then it's going to make this experience 10 times worse. <laughs> For real. It's going you know, to make this 10 times worse. So I'm just a positive individual. I always look at the bright side in any situation. It's just me naturally. You know what I'm saying? So it definitely helped you know what I'm saying the experience for sure for sure because i'm just here to tell y'all i did 14 days so as you read the book you have no clue every day you're just waking up hoping you hear some type of information and you go into bed disappointed i can only imagine that's just quite an experience that what what are some tenets of your spirituality like, i would love to hear more about that I'm Native American, so I'm very in tune with my ancestry, and I, you know what I'm saying I pray to them and pay homage to them. So the morning, that I, the morning of April fourth, the day I got arrested, I prayed. You know what I'm saying I, I do it. It's, every, it's a Thursday, so every Thursday I cook a meal for my ancestors. I lay the food out on my altar for them. You know what I'm saying and pray to them, pay homage and respect. So I did that that morning. So when everything, literally two, three hours after that, that's when everything popped off. You know what I'm saying? I blitzed at my apartment. They just showed up unexpectedly. You know what I'm saying? Drug test on the spot. Now it's all, you know what I'm saying? It was all chaotic. And as soon as we, and I'm like, I'm handcuffed in the van. I'm just like, I know I'm going to be good. I know I'm going to be good. I just pray to the ancestors this morning. I don't know what's going to happen, how this thing going to play out. But when it's all said and done, I'm going to be straight. And it's going to be a great story to tell once I'm out of this predicament. So it sounds like you're very, very in tune with your heritage. Yeah. A lot of a lot of um, Indigenous Americans are are not, which is unfortunate. But you know, you've got the blessing of being in tune with your culture and your heritage. A lot of people just don't know themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's really it. People just don't know themselves. I'm an individual that does. So it's like, yeah, that's what my whole. I am the way that I am. I speak the way that I speak. I carry myself the way that I do. You know what I'm saying? I'm not moved by certain things that may happen to in comparison to anybody else that it may happen to just because I'm, I'm an individual that know myself and stand on my foundations, my core, my, you know what I'm saying, ethics, morals, codes versus the, the, the average that has no clue, just completely lost. You know what I'm saying? And just adopting whatever's energy and spirits are around them <laughs> for real for real characters it sounds like it's really helped you to stay grounded and get through a lot of tough tough things <laughs> so you said when you wrote the book you had a friend who helped you with an outline um what was your writing process like as you went through that um it, the, the outline was it was like opening scene following scene uh <laughs> it was a climb it was like like that very very brief so, you know what I'm saying? It really wasn't, it was all specific. And I'm like, no, I, I just tell you, opening scene, all right? Literally, I'm telling a story of what happened. That's like you telling me a story, a traumatic story of yours, verbatim, from start to finish, in chronological order. I right, bet. Just tell it from start to finish. 
and I'm just writing it <laughs> as if I'm. It's an essay. Nah, <laughs> it ain't none of that. So I ain't even looking at it like that. And I'm not even finna write. Originally, write it like that. I'm writing it like I'm sending a text message, just to get the story on paper. Formatting, structuring, grammar. I can do all punctual. I can do all that after the fact. You know what I'm saying? Let me just write it how I would naturally say it. On, you know what I'm saying? On paper. And then, all right, once it's fully written, now go back to the beginning <laughs> and restructure. You know what I'm saying? Now we start fixing it. And it's like, you just continue to do that. Just continue to do that. You know what I'm saying? People be thinking this esoteric God-like giving ability that only the special mothers have. Like, nah, just tell them the story. Tell it how you would just tell it. <laughs> it's not school. <laughs> it's not school. Because they had to, people just think school, you, they hear writing, like, well, it's not school, but school then I feel like school is really just turned writing sour for a lot of people, you know what I'm saying? Because they didn't got away from the core of writing. This is true expression, you know what I'm saying? So just reminding people of, you know what I'm saying, what writing truly, truly is, the curriculums and <laughs> education systems and got them implemented and said was written. Absolutely. I agree 100%. When I'm writing, my first draft is just getting it all out. I don't worry about spelling. I don't worry about syntax. All of that comes in editing. If you go back after it's all down and you're like, okay, this, this section needs work. This section, I don't know, like, was I high when I wrote this? What's going on here? Um, but yeah, it's, it's not like school. I actually hated writing in school. I would like almost go into like a dissociative trance and forget what I was writing as soon as I was done with essays. People would be like, oh, what'd you write yours about? Like, I don't remember. I blocked it out. I hated writing in school so much. And now I, I write, but yeah, I, I just hated writing in school because it's like you're forced to write about a certain topic that you don't care about. You have no connection to <laughs> it's like, why? Why do I care why Beowulf slayed the monster? I don't. As <laughs> yeah, uh, it just turned people off to it. So like, man, just like, nah, man, just change the perspective. Everything boils down to perspective at the end of the day, how you choose to look at something. So it's like, just persuading them to look at it differently. You know what I'm saying? And now you just, okay, I'm just writing it. It's, it's therapeutic, this writing is, is, you know what I'm saying? I can release a lot just through this one form of communication. Most importantly, teaching people a form of communication because that's something that a lot of people just lack. You know what I'm saying? So if I can teach you how to express yourself and your emotions, your frustrations, especially kids, through a constructive way versus you just acting out, fighting, or doing drugs, whatever you choose, you know what I'm saying? Here go another platform that you can use to release whatever it is that you need to release. You know what I'm saying? And then most importantly, now you can take this and make a dollar off of it. Definitely an important skill. <laughs> How do you spread that enlightenment? How do you kind of ingrain that into the young children? Um, I'm partnered with a nonprofit and we work with at-risk teens. Um, we use 14 days in Beijing as part of the lessons. Cause like, okay, here y'all, y'all teenagers and that ran in with the law or either with drugs or doing something hot. So Hey, let's read about my story. I got locked up in China. Something that I've been locked up before. Something that y'all can relate to. You know what I'm saying? I got locked up for weed on top of that. Something that y'all can relate to as well. You know what I'm saying? But let's look at the differences between how my situation played out and how I went about handling it versus you and your situation. 
make you really sit back and reflect and reevaluate everything and see what you can take away from the experience to better you and your journey moving forward. You defining yourself, not letting the situation define you. So that aspect, and then um, I'm also an educator. I just got hired at this elementary school um, to start uh, running the writing program. Like I'm gonna call it the core writers. Uh, and like I said, it's bringing the core, bringing the core writing back, you know what I'm saying? Expressive writing, you know what I'm saying? So doing this with kids is, you know what I'm saying? 11 years or, and younger, that's gonna be dope, dope, for real, for real. And it's gonna be something that they can be proud of and they gonna own and, you know what I'm saying? Got their name on it and the school can promote and, and just taking it, you know what I'm saying? That foundation and just building off of it, moving forward. It's a marathon, step by step, brick by brick. Absolutely. Um, it was really creative writing and just free writing that I found my love of writing again. And I think that's really, yeah, what you say, the core of writing. It's telling your story and expressing yourself in in a way that there are no real constraints of what you're required to write about. Yeah, factual. Factual. You know what I'm saying? So I'm excited to see how it plays out when it's all said and done. <laughs> For sure. I know I was gonna go crazy. I know I was gonna go crazy. So what's next for you? Do you have more books planned? Uh, I actually just uh, dropped another book in November. Um, it's a romance novel. It piggybacks off of 14 Days as well, but completely different story and completely different tone for show, for show. But they go hand in hand. And I got another uh, well, book two to that romance. It's gonna be a, a, a it's gonna be a series for sure, for sure. So book three is gonna be part two of you know what I'm saying the romance story, but that's when it's going to bring 14, you know, it's going to tie 14 days into it, especially in that book too. So that, and then of course, publishing the book through the school for the kids. That's another one. I'm working with another, and now I'm writing books and showing people how easy it is. You know what I'm saying? How simple this is. Now I, I'm, I didn't inspire others to write their own stories and helping them with their books that they're going to publish to my publishing company. So it's like, yeah, my got my own personal projects and then other projects that I'm, gonna be helping other people with and but it's all gonna be him staying house and it's all gonna be tied to it when it's all said and done um in some form of fashion so all this is building this building well i'm very excited to see what the future holds for you where can people find you on social media and connect with you um my i can find me on every social media platform except tiktok tiktok is too new school for me yeah it's quiet yeah, it's not happening but everything else for sure it's a green light just google chancellor k jackson you'll have everything will pop up um previous interviews i've done all that chancellorkjackson.com also have my own website you copy 14 days in beijing on amazon you can also get it through my website and my romance novel you love and you learn available on amazon and my website as well. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me, Chancellor. It's been great chatting with you. I appreciate you for sure. Be sure to check the show notes for Chancellor's link tree with his website, social media, and everything else in there. Now on to comics. My latest comic deals with the aftermath of a hospitalization in the psychiatric ward. I'm stable now, don't worry, but I was really bad there for a bit to the point that I needed to be admitted and get basically babysat until I was stable again. 
It was a really rough few days and going back to work after that was a bit weird. My coworkers were of course happy to see me again after five days away and they wanted to know how I was doing, not knowing that I had just been released from the hospital. Only HR and my immediate manager knew that I had been in the hospital and even then I didn't give them details, mostly because it's none of their freaking business. Anyways, my most recent comic is about going back to work after all of that and trying to interact with mentally stable people while still in a somewhat frazzled state. You can see my comics on my comics Instagram at World of Possums or on my comics Facebook page, Possum Pete Comics. In comics news, from The Hollywood Reporter, Matt Kent writing, drawing, spy superb for Dark Horse. Matt Kent, who with two titles announced for Netflix adaptation earlier in August, is Hollywood's comic auteur de jour, is launching a new series, a spy thriller titled Spy Superb. Kent, a cartoonist who writes and sometimes draws his work, is reteaming with Dark Horse Comics, the publishing home of his hit Mind Management, for what is intended to be a miniseries featuring three overstuffed volumes. Kent's wife and sometimes collaborator, colorist Charlene Kent, will be painting the book which comes from Kent's recently launched boutique imprint Flux House, which aims to put out the cartoonist crime, science fiction, and horror stories. World War II veteran Richard Scott may have passed away, but his story is living on in the form of a comic made by Maggie Colangelo, a double major in arts and environmental science at Virginia Commonwealth University. Colangelo heard about Scott's time as a tail gunner, which began with his first mission on May 23, 1944, and ended in his plane being shot down over Italy on May 25, 1944. Scott slid onto the plane's tail as it was going down and hesitated, having never used a parachute before, but with the ground getting closer and closer, he managed to muster the courage to pull the ripcord. He broke his back on landing and was immediately captured by the Germans and sent to a prison camp. Colangelo specializes in digital comics meant to educate the reader in a humorous and interesting way. She learned about Scott from one of her professors, who had interviewed him before his death. I've included a link to Colangelo's website in the show notes where you can find her work. All right, next up is journalism. I'm still slowly working on my true crime books. I'm no longer worried about breaking a story because both books that I've been working on, the Ezekiel Steffen case and the Chad Daybell Lori Vallow case, are high-profile enough cases that whenever I get the books out, people will likely still be interested in finding out more about them. I'm more interested in exploring every possible angle and being as accurate in reporting the facts as possible. In current events, from the Baltimore Sun, Smith Island weathered a tornado, now a seven-person panel must decide how to distribute $116,000 in relief. Experts say the best thing people can do after a natural disaster is to donate money that will be distributed by a responsible local nonprofit. Hours after a tornado spun through tiny Smith Island on August 4th, hitting 17 buildings and severely damaging three, that's exactly what began to happen. Jay Fleming, a photographer and frequenter of the island, started a GoFundMe campaign the night the tornadic waterspout struck. So far, about 1,200 people have donated that way to the island's relief efforts. The money will soon be controlled by Smith Island United, a tax-exempt charity on the remote island in the Chesapeake Bay. That group has formed a seven-person panel to begin the task of fairly dispersing $116,000 in relief funds to an island of 200 well-acquainted people. It's dealing with a lot of money, and we want to make sure we get it right, said Eddie Summers, president of Smith Island United. I really appreciate the effort this small local charity is making. I have some experience working directly with local relief charities, 
and some with larger organizations that make bureaucracy almost more important than helping people. When I was the chief journalist for Bare Soul Project, while they were helping out after the fires in Eugene, Oregon in 2020, I worked directly with individuals who had been denied aid by the Red Cross because they didn't have the right documentation to prove they were coming from the evacuation zone, either because they didn't have ID or their ID had an old address on it, or simply because they hadn't thought to bring proof of ownership of the buildings that were in the evacuation zone while they were fleeing for their lives. Many of these individuals were elderly, had complex medical problems or mental health issues. These are people who need immediate assistance and the Red Cross turned them away. Small local nonprofits can fill that gap. While it's past the point of needing immediate assistance and now to the stage of rebuilding, there are always going to be people who need more assistance than others. Fair doesn't always mean equal. Those who had their homes completely destroyed and have no insurance are going to need more help than someone who lost their roof and the insurance will cover it. At the same time, you don't want to just throw money at the problem and waste money that could have been used in a more efficient way. There are many factors to consider. Appointing a seven-person committee is the best thing they could have done to prevent corruption and make sure the people who need the most help get that help they need. And then there's this guy, Michael Vitalero, a cop in Chicago who just doesn't know how to act right. Someone stole his son's bike, which that sucks for the kid. I would be big mad too. But what he did next is inexcusable. Vitalero heard that the bike had been spotted at Starbucks. So I went to Starbucks to see what he could see. There was the bike just on the sidewalk. Did he call it good? Grab the bike and go? No. Mm -mm. He waited around to see who would come for the bike. When a 14 year old who was riding his own bike dismounted to move the bike out of the sidewalk, you know, so he could continue riding, Vitalero got out of his vehicle and tackled this kid to the ground. Oh, and did I mention he's not only off duty at this time, but also outside of his area of jurisdiction? Yeah. So this loser kneels on some random kid's back while calling 911 for backup. And of course, the kid's friends start filming and tell him to get off of him, which he finally does. And Starbucks and the other businesses in the area were able to provide security footage to prove that this kid had nothing to do with this bike. Fidelero has been arrested on charges of felony misconduct and aggravated battery, so at least that's something. But how about you don't assault random kids in the first place? Freaking cops, man. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. My barefoot adventures this week have been pretty limited. I've been hanging out at home for the most part, but what errands I have had to run, I have run barefoot. Feeling a lot better than when I was in the hospital last week, but I'm still low energy and every day is still a struggle. In barefoot news, actress Eliza Gonzalez was spotted running errands barefoot in Los Angeles on August 16th. She had what looked to me like physical therapy tape on one ankle, so I hope she's okay. And the Daily Mail reported on the rest of her outfit, how she wore her hair, her sunglasses, her toned stomach, and basically ignored her bare feet. But that was the most impressive part of the outfit to me. South African man Sebongale Mankai has started a soccer team for kids as young as 10 rescued from the drug trade, where drug dealers get them hooked on drugs and force them to run drugs for them. Sebongale trains with the kids every day after school and on weekends. They call themselves the Bacania Football Club. This is a very poor team in terms of money, not quality of soccer. None of the children own cleats. Many of them own no shoes at all. Most of the equipment they do have was provided by Sibongale from his pay working as a goat, sheep, and cattle herder, or donated secondhand from the local high school. 
They may not have the looks of Manchester United, but they have something more important. Hope. Playing soccer every day is keeping these kids away from substance use and keeping them in school. Perhaps some will even make it to the major league someday. Who knows? Hey, that's all for this episode. I'll be back next time with an interview with Anya Lee Jacobs, author of The Queen of It All. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com or hit me up on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Sierra Barefoot, on TikTok at Sierra is Barefoot, or on Instagram at Sierra the Barefoot. Thank you to Legion X for my intro and outro music. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra. <laughs>